Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts, the 15th chapter, please? At various times within the church, church leaders have been called together to settle doctrinal issues. There was at one time an issue within the faith for the inerrancy of Scripture. There was some that were saying, well, uh, how much of Scripture can you trust? Well, the, the Bible says that every single word has been given to us by God. And so they had a meeting about that, and, and they came to the agreement that the Scriptures were, were perfect as they are. They were inerrant. They also talked about, was Jesus Christ truly God? Was He man? What do we do about baptism? Those questions came about. As important as the councils were, perhaps the most important council that ever met was the first one that we are going to read about here in Acts chapter 15. It was the most significant because it settled once and for all the most significant doctrinal question of all time. And that is, what must a person do to be saved? What does it mean to have eternal salvation? What does the scriptures teach about it? What must you and I do so that we may be saved, so that we might have eternal life? As we read here in chapter 15 from verses 1 to 11, what we're going to find out is what has happened throughout the history of the church. And that is, people come in to try to divert our attention away from the basic truths of the Word of God. Verse 1, chapter 15 to verse 11. Some men came down from Judea. And began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Verse 3, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church... They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Verse 5 says, But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. 
He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Your salvation and my salvation is in question here. Do not be misled by the simple idea of circumcision. Circumcision was just kind of a code idea of becoming more ritualistic, becoming a Jew first so that then you can become a believer. They were trying to propose to the people that first you must be circumcised, first you must fall under the law of Judaism before you can be saved. That issue is critical to everyone who walks the face of this earth. And the disciples, the apostles, the elders, they met that challenge head on. And they answered it clearly. It's important that you and I know what it means. So let's, let's take a good look at it. Let's first pray, and then let's ask the Lord to teach us. Father, we, uh, we come to a place in Scripture that, that impacts every person that walks the very face of this earth. It deals with denominations. It deals with religion. It deals with everything that is a part of mankind. And Father, you narrow it down through the apostles that there is only one way that a person may be saved. And that's through faith in your wonderful and precious Son, Jesus Christ. That's why here at this church, Father, we exalt your Son. We, we love him very much, Father, because you have asked us. No, you have commanded us to love your Son and to exalt Him and to honor Him and to give Him His rightful place within this church and within our lives. And so, Father, He is the very cornerstone of everything that we are. He is the one that we have built this church, the rock, meaning your Son. We've built it upon His integrity, the very essence of who your Son is. And so, Father, teach us so that none of us may walk away from here bewildered about what must we do to be saved. What traditions, what works, what laws, what must we do to be saved? I pray, Father, that you would take me and move me aside. Please, dear Father, allow us to see the wonders and the glory of your words that we just read. Allow us to see the wonders and the glory of your Son, the very one who gives each of us who would believe salvation. We trust in you, Father. We ask that you will, by the Holy Spirit, teach us tonight. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Two groups come. They're not the same. Look at verse 1. It says, Some men 
came down from Judea. We don't know if these men were saved or not saved. We just know that they came down from Judea. Verse 5, though, says, There were certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. They stood up and they said the same thing that these men said back in in Antioch. The ones that came from Judea in verse 1. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How do you think that made all, made all the Gentiles feel? That, that, that Peter and, and Paul had talked to on their missionary journeys. Who heard of this rumor that, whoa, maybe we don't have eternal life. Maybe there's something more we need to do. What is it? You hear that throughout church after church after church after church after church across these United States of America. There are people that want to make you and me conform into whatever denomination they may be. You have to be baptized. Some would say you have to speak in tongues. Others will say you have to go through the sacraments. There are certain things you must do. Others will say, which is perhaps the most terrible heresy of all, you got to be good enough. you got to be good enough to be saved. you got to straighten your life out before you can be saved. They were saying in verse 1, unless you're circumcised, according to the law of Moses, the custom of Moses, in other words, they're saying, unless you become Jewish, unless you fall under our traditions, our works, you can't be saved. They were saying that works were necessary, are a part of salvation. Is that true? Do you believe that at all? Listen. Listen closely if you do. And judge whether that is truth or not. The apostles, the elders, the leaders of the church, successfully resisted the pressure that they were given in verses 1 and verse 5. The pressure was impose our Jewish traditions, our Jewish rituals, our laws upon the Gentiles. And the leadership of the church at that time, the apostles confirmed with one voice that salvation was given wholly by God's grace in faith alone and in Christ alone not a part of anything that you and I can do on our own human efforts to obtain everlasting life. Let me just share with you, after studying this all this week, which was really a wonderful thing, there was a lot more underlying underneath this one statement that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. There was a lot more that they were thinking in that process of saying you've got to be circumcised. Their motive was, what are we going to do, Jewish brethren, with the influx of so many Gentiles coming into the church? As we have seen over and over again, wherever Paul went, wherever they taught, Barnabas and Paul, wherever Peter went, It said multitudes, many people believed in the Lord. And so all of a sudden, here are these 
Jewish believers, Jewish people that have now made up the church, they're all of a sudden having to deal with Gentiles coming into the church. And that threatened them. Threatened them. Look at the logic. The Jews, therefore, wanted the Gentiles to become Jews first. Be circumcised. Because they could not conceive that a Gentile could simply enter into the church, confess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and immediately, immediately be on the same footing with the Jews. How many of you think that way? Some person gets saved. They don't fit into our mold, quote unquote mold of who we are, who we think we are, and we look down our noses on them. Are you sure that person's saved? I remember what they used to live like. And so the Jews wanted the Gentiles to be Jews first. It seemed, and listen to this logic, it's, it's really clear to me, it seemed unfair to the Jews. I'm talking about the Jews who were devoted in their lives in keeping the law of God. Those Jews that were, that were above reproach as far as the law was concerned, they kept it. Paul was one. He says, according to law, I was blameless. When the Lord told Peter, eat the food, Peter, Peter says, I have never, I have never eaten anything unclean. I keep the law. And all of a sudden, they are teaching that a Gentile who kept none of that could come in and acquire eternal life, acquire salvation just like them without doing something, anything. So they figured, let's circumcise them. Let's let's make them fall under the law. They also feared another thing. As that might not have seemed fair to them, they were fearful that with the influx of so many Gentiles, the Jewish culture, the Jewish traditions, the influence of the Jews would be lost now within Christianity. It would be a a huge melting pot. And who would be now in control? What would happen to all the traditions of our faith In God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What happens to all of that? What happens to our heritage? So when the council met, the issue was not really, could a Gentile be saved? Peter has already dealt with that. Peter reminded them, of that. Read with me again verses 7 through 11. Peter said, after there had been at much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, now I don't by any stretch of my imagination believe this is the first time that Peter said anything. Knowing Peter, 
He's had something to say during these meetings. But now he stands up and he says in verse 7, Brethren, you know. He's, he's, he's pleading to the, what they already know. You know, he says, that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, in other words, God chose me, Peter said, that through my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And, he says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us as well. They're on the same footing that we are, he is saying. He has said in verse 9, God doesn't even make a distinction between them and us. He's, he's cleansed their heart by faith, just like he did us. Therefore, he says, why are you gonna, why are you gonna put God to the test? In other words, I love this. Why are you going to try and change what God has done? Who are you to test God? Why are you now going to put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, in other words, the Gentiles, a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I'm going to show you this in a moment, how powerful that statement is. But, he says in verse 11, we believe that we're saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. Do you notice that? You notice what he did? It's a great teaching lesson. He says, they're not saved like us. He is saying, we're saved like them. That hurt their feelings, I think. He put them above them. So the issue of salvation to a Gentile wasn't at an issue. That they, they understood what Peter said. Peter, remember, well, I already said this to you, but remember in the 10th chapter, in the 34th and the 35th verse, I don't expect you to remember, but it was the time where, where, where the Lord lowered a sheet, remember, down, and, and Peter was on the roof of this tanner, uh, uh, in, in Jop, was in Joppa, I think. Uh, forgive me. I just, I should have read it a little more closely. But anyways, when the, when the, the sheet came down, there was a lot of food there and, and Peter was praying and, and, and he was hungry and, and a voice said to him, kill, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not me. No, 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 no. Uh, 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 uh. I have never, ever eaten anything unclean. What he was implying, folks, was that he was better than any Gentile because he kept the law. Your goodness. Your goodness. You guys. You, you. Our goodness does not save us. Keeping the law isn't that issue with us. You ought to thank God for that. Watch in a moment. So the question they're asking really is this. Ah, circumcision so much. By the way, it isn't really all about that. It's all about traditional. It's all about um, rituals. It's about denominations, say, for instance. They're asking how. How then should we be saved? How can these people, Gentiles, come in on the equal footing with us? We knew God forever. They've just been introduced to Him. 
They are also asking, how could they enter into the kingdom of God? That was something that was given to us, the Jews. They're asking, didn't they have to come through the traditions of Judaism first like us? And so what happens to the church is what happens to every single church. That's why you and I need to be grounded in this. We need to understand this as purely as we can. That's why this must be taught. Because throughout the history of the church, one thing has been consistent. There have been false prophets and there are false teachers. False prophets come into the world and try to take people away from our Lord and Savior. And false teachers come into the church adding upon us a yoke that nobody could really carry. Trying to change our attitude about what God wants us to be. Look at second. You, do you have a Do you have a moment to turn to Second Peter chapter two verse one, and then on the way back Acts chapter twenty. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter two verse one. He says, "Let me tell you something about the church." He's saying, but. No, let me tell you something about life, he is saying. This is a great verse. You might want to look at this verse and read it closely sometime. He says, false prophets also arose among the people. That's not talking about inside the church. Among the people means false prophets have come into the world and have infiltrated this world with what prophets, false prophets will do trying to lead people astray. Then he says, just as, verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 2, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Among you means inside the church. We need to be careful. We need to be careful what we teach and how we teach and, and, and the principles that we teach. Here at this church, we need to be in unity with one another, believing the same things, being taught the same things. They will, he says, again in Second Peter 2.1, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will deny the Master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, as you're going back to Acts chapter 15, stop at Acts chapter 20. Listen to what Paul says, very similar to what Peter just warned. Paul says, because Paul was this missionary that went from church to church to church, really went from, from place to place to place, and, and wherever he went, he started a movement. He started a church within that community. He warned the people where he was, knowing that he was going to leave. He says, I know. I know something for certain, he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know something for certain. After I depart, savage wolves are going to come in among you. In other words, come in within the church, not sparing the flock. Verse 30 says, from among your own selves. In other words, from among the members of the church, people will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. One of the greatest heresies, one of the greatest problems within the church is 
when a false teacher or someone will come in to try to disrupt the family of God with teachings that are not in line with what the church is teaching. Saying you have to do this a little bit more or that a little bit more so that you'll be right with God. And the teaching that salvation, yours and my salvation, can be achieved by something we do other than what our Lord has already done at the cross, I believe is the most destructive heresy that comes upon the church. Because what that does, think it through, what that does is the moment that if I were to teach you that you have to do, you know, I want you to accept the Lord, but you also have to do something else. The moment I say you have to do something else, it takes Jesus Christ out of the picture. Little by little. Maybe not a lot, but just enough that we move Him aside and bring in you to do something more than what He did to gain salvation. That's destructive heresies the apostles and the leaders of the church taught here in Acts chapter 15. Anything that you and I do, apart from trusting in Christ and He alone for our salvation, places the emphasis upon our own ability to save our own selves, and that, folks, is impossible. Can't be done. You, 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 me, we cannot save ourselves. God had to do it for us by sending His Son to die for us. And so any teaching that moves Jesus Christ aside runs against the grace of God. And it's dangerous for our salvation. Look at Galatians. Hold your place here. Turn to the right. Look at Galatians chapter 3. And then we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 3. And then Galatians chapter 5. This could be the most important message that you and I will ever hear. Because sooner or later, someone's going to come to you and say, you're going to need to do something to be saved. You say, well, I've accepted Christ. And they're going to say, well, you need to do something else, you know. It's not just Christ. And what I want you to be is so set in the knowledge of who Christ is and your own salvation that that will not rock you. It says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, the Scriptures, in other words, this, the Word of God that we study here at this church, the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. In other words, Scripture has been written and we study it so that we would see ourselves as what? We would see ourselves as sinners. That's why people are supposed to study the Bible. You're not supposed to study the Bible to see what a wonderful person you are. You study the Bible to see how wonderful God is. And you study the Bible to see how wretched we are. The Scriptures have shut up every one of us under sin. And it says, without 
any hope from apart from well and then it says so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those of us who believe we need to see ourselves as sinners it's not a bad thing it's not a bad thing at all that we see ourselves as sinners it is a good thing that we would be saved from our sin by a savior who has set us free. Well, let me show you how much he set us free. Look at Galatians now, chapter 5. Read with me verses 1 through 6. It was, verse, verse 1, chapter 5, Galatians. It was for freedom that Jesus Christ set you and me free. Therefore, Paul writes, keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Basically, He is saying, don't be subject to something that is added that you have to do so as to be saved. Don't go there, he is saying. Behold, Paul says, I say to you, if you receive circumcision, in other words, if you have been circumcised or if you follow the traditions or you follow the law, Christ will be what? I mean, look, it's so clear. Christ will be what to you? No benefit. My goodness. You cannot be more lost than if Jesus Christ is of no benefit to you or me. So he says, if you want to choose to follow under circumcision, or it's not really just circumcision he's talking about. He's talking about traditions, the laws, the things that you have to do. Whatever it is that someone says you have to do apart from Christ. If you want to set yourself up there, he says, and you want to fall under that tradition, then Jesus Christ is of no benefit to you. Don't go there, folks, please. I beg of you, with all my heart, hear what I'm saying. Jesus Christ is everything to you and me. Everything else is nothing to you and me. He is our salvation. He and He alone. Now, Paul says, I testify again, verse 3. To every person who receives circumcision, in other words, who receives the traditions or works, that person is under obligation to keep the whole law. That's why Peter said, you don't want to get under that yoke again. Don't go under that yoke again because our fathers couldn't keep it. You can't keep it, neither can we, because there's one thing the Scriptures teach. I was going to hold up my Bible. There's one thing the the Scriptures teach, and that is that you and I are sinners, and we are hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost, apart from Jesus Christ. And so he says there, if you want to keep the law, then you've got to keep it all. Miss one part of it. One part of it, you missed it all. So he says, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. That is, if you're going to keep the law. You who are seeking to be justified by, by what? By the law. Well, I thought he was talking about circumcision. Yes, he was. But circumcision was only a code for traditions and ritualism and law and works. And he says, you're seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Oh my God, don't fall from grace, folks. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He gives you what you and I don't deserve. He gives us everlasting life. Don't fall out from under grace. 
don't fall under grace. He says in verse 5, For we through the Spirit, by faith, by faith, just faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. In other words, the law, the rituals, they don't mean anything. Whether you want to keep them or whether you don't want to keep them, they're meaningless. So what means something? If there's, if they mean nothing, then what means something? He says at the end of verse 6, faith, 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 working through love. I believe Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it best. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of what? Works. Circumcision. Ritualism. Works. Not as a result of works so that none of us will be able to boast. Your salvation, my salvation is settled in Christ and He alone. When you walk out of here tonight, I want you to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross is sufficient for your salvation. And you need nothing else after that. That's right. Without the shedding of blood, Pastor John just said, there is no remission of sin. That's the truth. Blood. The blood of Christ. And so what they are implying, back to Acts chapter 15, is that everyone must be circumcised to be saved. What they are saying is, the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross is not adequate enough for you. No, you have to, I have to, we have to go through some other ritual or something else, Lord knows what. There'll be false teachers that'll try to tell us something else in order that we may be saved. Let me share with you what we've been trying to teach here at the Rock Community Church. This is ahead of the game. Acts chapter 15, verse 24. Look what happened. It's an insight of what happened to these so-called teachers. But, but Luke calls them false teachers. Know what it says in Luke, excuse me, in Acts chapter 15, verse 24. They wrote in a letter these words. They sent, verse 23, they sent a letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren at Antioch and Syria and Sicilia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since, verse 24, since we have heard some of our number to whom, what? We have given no instruction. We have given no instruction. They've disturbed you with their words. They're unsettling your soul. You see, stop here. That's what we've been studying since we began this great book. Chapter 1, chapters, uh, other chapters, chapter 10 especially, but chapter 1. We have been given orders. The Bible says, here are your orders. God the, whole, God, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit confirmed through orders what the apostles were to teach to the church. We saw in chapter 2 that we are to be a group of people who are continually devoted to the things of God. 
teaching of the apostles, fellowship with one another, communion and prayer. That's basically what makes up a church. Those are the orders that have been given through the apostles to a church. And so, as we've been teaching here at the Rock Community Church, you and I are not to make Christianity into our model. We haven't the right to make Christianity into our idea of faith. We have no right, really, to start a denomination. I am, anytime I do a wedding or anyone ever asks me, what denomination are you? I put down Christian. That's it. I am a Christian. If they want further information, I'll tell them I am a man who has been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's what I am. That's my denomination. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't like denominations, to be honest with you all. You see, we have been given orders. Churches have been given instructions how to do church. And we have not been given the orders to water down the gospel. We don't, we don't have that right. Why churches do it is beyond me. We do not have the right to not allow you to bring, or not to ask you to bring your Bibles into church so that we won't offend a non-believer who comes in here who doesn't have a Bible. Oh, God forbid that they would feel uncomfortable that we're reading from our Bibles. No, no. Maybe God bless them. They'll go buy a Bible and come back and study with us. That's the process. We're not to change ourselves so as to make a non-believer who comes here, and by the way, if you're a non-believer and you're here, we love you with all of our hearts, but we're not going to change and tell you something that's not true so that you'll feel good about yourself. We're going to tell you flat out, you're a sinner, and you better repent, and you better come to Christ, or you won't be saved. That's what we want to tell you because that's what the Lord says that we're to tell one another. And so you and I have been given orders, and we're to follow these orders. In verse 2 of chapter 15, what we see is this decision was bigger than one area. It was bigger than one church. It was bigger than one group. They took the, the, the information that they had from Antioch and they went up to the apostles, the ones who gave the orders in Jerusalem to make a, a decision about this salvation. Look what it says in verse 6. The apostles and the elders, once they got to Jerusalem, they came together to look into this matter. And then they told them, as we said in verse 24, we gave nobody instructions to teach what they're teaching about circumcision. They're wrong. They're wrong. And I believe with all my heart, if they continued in that teaching, they would have kicked them out of the church. They did not want to bring some leaven into the family of God. And they became, look at verse 25, which we won't do for a couple of weeks, but look at verse 25. It seemed good to us, having been come of what? Of one mind. They agreed. They were of one mind. They agreed that salvation is not connected to, to circumcision or works. Because they said that God knows our hearts. Verse 8. He gave to the Gentiles the same thing He gave to us. Same Holy Spirit. Verse 11. We're saved by the grace of the Lord the same way that the Gentiles are saved. 
They're saved like us. We're saved like them. It is tit for tat. We are both on the same page. We are both in the same boat. We are both going in the same direction. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, listen, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given amongst us by which we must be saved. Only one way for salvation. Whenever you and I or anyone out there in this world adds anything to the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. What you have is religion. And we don't want religion. What we want is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Each of us. We want to be personally wed, personally embraced, personally connected to, personally abiding in Him. It's not a church thing. It's an individual thing. This church will not get you to heaven. You'll hear about it. But the only thing that will get you to heaven is your own decision to follow after Jesus Christ and He alone for your salvation. Not the church, not a denomination. And so the only way we can come to God, Jesus Christ pretty much said, without stuttering, I might add, He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am... And nobody comes to the Father, but through me, Jesus said. That's pretty, that's pretty clear. I mean, I'm not the smartest, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I can catch that. I understand that, I really do. I, I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm figuring he didn't lie when he said that. I'm figuring he's asking me to... I'm going to go to the Father, and the only way is I'm going through Him, and so God bless Him, I'm hanging on for dear life to my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, when He said that, bottled Himself up, and the whole world, I might add, into one truth. He put Himself in a corner. He says, you can't come to the Father unless you come through Me. What about all the other denominations? What about all the other religions? Well, if they want to continue on believing that their religion and their denomination is going to get them to heaven, I'll let them choose that denomination, that religion. I'm following Jesus. What about you? I'm following Jesus Christ. Thank you. You see, there's really only one question Jesus asks the lost word. I got one more thing I want to say. So I got it written down. Let me finish. Should have quit there, right? There's only one question our Lord will ask the lost world. Same thing He asks every single one of us, and it is this. What have you done with my son who died for you? What God will never ask you is, are you a good person? He already knows you're not. So why would He ask you? He's not going to ask you, do you belong to a church? Because that's not an issue. He's not going to ask you, have you done... Have you been baptized? Um, Have you, you know kept the sacraments, he's not going to ask you that. The only question he's going to ask you is, my son, Jesus Christ died for you. What will you do for him for the forgiveness of your sin? Your personal answer to that question, I might add, will determine your eternal destiny. 
If you trust in anything apart from Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for you, and when He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, anything else you call upon to save you is considered works, circumcision. And it profits you absolutely nothing, I'm telling you, by the name of, by the, by the Word of God. It's time to quit. Let me ask you this question. I would be, I would be, I would really not be a very good pastor for you if I didn't. Is there anyone here tonight that has never asked Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, I don't know, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm still going to figure out altar calls. I'm not real good at it. Because I think it's a personal thing between you and the Lord. I think once you accept the Lord, you should be perhaps, not like me, but you should perhaps be not ashamed to say, yes, I'm a believer. I'm following Jesus Christ. I think that's good. But if you're here this evening and you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, we don't know how more clearly to tell you that it is through Him, not the church, not your goodness, it is through Him that you will have everlasting life. And we would be remiss as a church not to afford you the opportunity to pray to receive Christ. Now, if you say in your heart, I don't know if I have him, I need him, that's enough. You ask him into your heart. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to make you in the type of person he's created you to be. You don't have to do a special prayer. There's no special prayer. There's no hoops that you have to jump through. It's just trusting in Christ for your salvation. I do believe that it is imperative that you and I, once we become believers, become a part of the church, and then start doing good things. Not so that we'll be more saved, but so that we'll be obedient to our Father by doing the things that He's called us to do to impact this world for the cause of Christ. That's the only reason you and I do any good things. We do good things not to make us more lovely to God. Ain't going to happen. The only thing He sees when He looks in you and you've accepted Christ is His Son. Because he can't look upon sin. Once you come to Christ, that's when the fun begins. That's when you get involved. That's when you be a part of the, the junior high kids and the high school kids and, and, and some other groups and, and get involved in the church and see God use you through the gift that he has given you. Now, now I'm meddling. Let's close. Father, if there's anyone here that needs to uh, confess you as their Savior and Lord tonight, may they do so. In their heart of hearts, may they ask you to forgive them of their sin. May they ask you, dear Father, to be a part of their heart. And Father, may they know by what is taught tonight through the Holy Spirit, and through the Word of God that we have just read clearly, that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can do apart from what your Son has done at the cross for our salvation. May we trust in Him and Him alone for our eternal destiny. We leave it all in your hands, dear Father. The Son, your Son, whom you've given to us, we trust in him. Therefore, we trust in what you have done for each of us according to your kindness. Bless us, Father, as we go from here. I love these people so much, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of this marvelous church. Bless our high schoolers and junior hires. Bless the people that are teaching them. Thank you for them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Love you all. Have a great, great, great night. Thanks.